do your thing. I'll talk for a little bit. Take your time. Uh, okay, here we are. I'm Bryce Hancock. Um, this is Mile High Recovery Chat. I am here with Kevin Peterson of the Chronic Hope Institute, and I'm here with Sarah Zubrin, uh, the CCO from my treatment center, Mile High Continuing Care. Um, are you ready, Kev? Okay. So we, so Kevin Peterson is widely known as like uh, just like that's an expert in family therapy. Um, you are like I, I recently went to somebody and you know this. I asked them who should I who should I recommend my friend to and all three people I asked said Kevin Peterson and then I went to the guy and I said well Kevin Peterson he goes I know Kevin Peterson I should have asked Kevin Peterson so you're <laughs> you're widely respected as a family therapist and as just a therapist and so I want to like reiterate like I do every time I don't do a pre-interview I don't know your story uh, but I did read your book uh, the book Chronicope and uh, it's a great book and, and it, it starts out with you. It's kind of your story. And we are kindred spirits in that we live currently a very 12-step kind of life. Mm -hmm. And that as young men, like I'll speak for myself, but I was just a bonehead and I was a partier and I was an addict and I lied to my parents and I failed out of college and I lied about that. And then I got back in, I lied about you know, everything, right? And um, so your experience was that uh, finally, I don't know, so, someone talked to your parents and taught them boundaries and it changed your life. Yeah. You know, I think another, yeah, absolutely. And that did change my life and it actually saved my life. Um, and I think another important thing sort of element to add into that conversation, that statement of the conversation is that I grew up in a house of addiction. My mom was a prescription drug addict. And so I come at this from a perspective of having grown up in a house of chaos and anxiety and crisis and drama. And then around 13, um, picking up drugs and alcohol and just like, whoo, oh my God, where the hell has this been? You know, I needed this in the first grade. And, um, and then, yeah, when I was 26, uh, my, I, was in a, I was in a car with my dad for a four hour drive between San Luis Obispo and Palo Alto, California, and the first five minutes went like this. Kevin, you're my only son and I love you, but I don't believe a word out of your mouth. <laughs> you're a liar, a cheat, and a thief, and you're an alcoholic and a drug addict, and you're out of the family. And I was just like, oh, three hours and 55 minutes to go. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, what, and so what happened, it's important to understand that what happened then was that I did what I did, which was what I know alcoholics and addicts do, is I put on my hustle. And they were having none of it, you know. And six weeks later, I was like, okay, fine. What do I got to do? And they said, you need to go see this therapist with your father. And so in January of 1991, my dad and I started seeing a therapist together. And that, and by the way, this was all planned and it was all the setup, you know. I think today they would have done an intervention. Um, but then, so I started seeing this therapist. And then my parents were out of town and, uh, at the end of April in 1991. And this therapist was really funny. He's like, so Kevin, your parents are out of town. Your dad's out of town. So I have something I want to talk about, <laughs> but we normally talk about what you want to talk about. So what do you want to talk about? I'm like, bro, we can talk about whatever you want. He's like, you're an alcoholic and a drug addict and you need help. And I was like, yeah, you got me. And I mean, I'd heard that many, many, many times. And, and, but that was the time where I was like, okay, 
what do I do? He's like, you go to AA. Did it hit different or was it just good timing? Like, you know, I think it's one of those things where, I mean, I've been hearing that for a long time. I mean, a long, long, long time. I remember going to a series of therapists and at some point they'd be like, we need to talk about your alcohol and your drug use. And I'd be like, oh, that's too bad. This is going to be our last session. Yeah, I really right. like exactly. You know? yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, I've had jobs and girlfriends and friends and family all tell me I had a problem. And I think what had happened after five months of really having this in-depth conversation with my dad and with the therapist and really putting all the cards on the table, um, when he hit me with that, all the evidence was there. It's like, well, you lied about graduating from college. You've lied about everything. Everything you do is just one giant scam. So, and I was like, yeah, you got me. So Okay. And so we're also kindred spirits in that you sobered up and then you went, you know, you went to work. You were a salesperson, a salesman, successful salesman, but you were unhappy. And then a few things, there was some drama, a few things happened. And then you followed your passion, which is where you are now. And so you're sort of living the 12th step. It's like I like to say, and you're, you're using the experience you just described it's like the basis of the book. It's mm. uh, it's like it's like okay, we're gonna get your loved one sober one oh one. Forget everything you think you know about it. We're not just gonna send them to rehab, and you go into a whole thing. You talk about codependency, and one of the things I like is that you say confronting a family's codependency is as hard and it's as important as confronting the addict with their addiction. You know, and I would even say it's almost harder to be totally blunt in the sense that addicts and alcoholics, they know they have a problem. They just don't want to quit. You know, I mean, I think effectively at some point in the life of every addict and alcoholic, they're like, all right, you know, I know the clock's running. You know, I'm not going to be able to get away with this forever. But but the funny part about the families is that the families have become so vested generationally in accommodating and covering and taking care of that they think that's their job and they think that's good parenting and good family you know, stewardship. And, and what they don't realize is that they're actually enabling and allowing the person, you know, we hear the phrase all the time, you're loving them to death, you know? And so what, that's the hard part of it. The hard part is getting the family to, to look back at themselves and be like, oh, wow. And, and the important thing for them to understand is they're not responsible for the other person's addiction, but they are responsible for how they respond to it. You know? Yeah. And, and so that's, that's, it's, that's a tough challenge because they've been making the trains run on time for however many years. And now you're telling them that they got to stop doing that. Right. And so when I started this, in this industry, I opened a sober house and very quickly the family uh, thing was right in my face as a huge problem. And I know that Sarah at our treatment center runs a family group uh, weekly, right? Yeah. And it's really funny when we're talking about like driving the bus and the codependency piece, because I run groups and I'm like, okay, let's talk about symptoms of stress. And then I read off the DSM diagnosis of PTSD and they're like, oh yeah, I got that nightmares. Yeah, I have those. And I'm like, so what you're saying is you're literally trauma bonded to your alcoholic or addict. 
And they're like, whoa, mind blowing. I thought I was just being a parent. I thought I was just being a spouse. And it's, it's been a really eye-opening experience for the parents and the family members. But like, on the other hand, you kind of have to trick them <laughs> into doing the work because they're like, I'm here to help my kiddo. Right. And it's, they don't have any like comprehension or insight into how severely ill the disease of addiction makes people. Right. And like, it's right. And like, it's, it's so obvious after you, like, I didn't, I'm not even a therapist and it was painfully obvious. Like mm. this kid's not going to stay sober because as soon as he leaves, they're going to get him and they're going to pay for his apartment. They're going to give him a car or whatever it is. Right. Mm. And I just like, let me ask a question. And then you guys just riff on this for a second. <laughs> is it possible or is it very likely that that someone is going to get sober? Let's say, you know, a kid in their 20s is going to get sober if the family doesn't do their own work. <laughs> well, I, I think I'm reading Sarah's body language. <laughs> she doesn't think so. And, I, you know, here's the thing I would say is that, you know, uh, is it possible you know, look, people can get sober, but will they, here's the big question. Will they stay sober? And because here's what happens a lot of times, right, is that the family stages the intervention. They snatch the guy or girl, throw them into treatment, you know, and they do their 30 days and they come home and nothing's changed. So technically they're sober, but then you put them back in the environment where the family system hasn't changed. Here, here's the analogy I always use. When a business is going broke, you don't fire the receptionist. You know, you bring in a consultant and the consultant sets everybody down and stops, starts with the management team and says, look, the way you guys are running the show isn't working. It's evident that's why you're going broke. So what I want to do is show you a new way of doing things that I think is going to help everybody. And then the, then the family has an option of saying, okay, great, we're going to do that. Or yeah, we're not doing that. You know, and, and sadly, as Sarah, I know will tell you, because it's the same experience I have. A lot of times the families are like, yeah, I don't have a problem. Uh, right. I'm not doing it. I'm, and, not on, I'm not on drugs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, yeah. it's like a sort lot of. of parents when we talk about like the failure to launch or, um, people who are really struggling in their early adulthood, parents feel this sense of obligation to caretake because um, X, Y, and Z, and especially with COVID and difficulty with employment. And oftentimes we see failure to launch is really associated with depression and other stuff in adolescence. So the parents have like this obligation to caretake and this like deep seated belief that this is really going to work. And as Kevin's saying, if nothing changes in the home, nothing's going to change with the person. Um, and like I got over at 21 years old. So like I can tell you with certainty if my mom didn't make a lot of change that I wouldn't be sober today. Um, and it's just that one person. It doesn't have to be the whole family system. It just has to be one person who comprehends exactly how detrimental that enabling is. And, and so much of, I mean, to go deeper, dig deeper into the whole codependent behavior pattern and where it comes from and why is, you know, it's, uh, it's generational, you know, uh, people 
it's something that's learned. It's a learned behavior that gets passed on from generation to generation to generation. And what I always tell my clients is that, you know, you have this, this deep seated wound inside of you. Of a, it's an attachment wound is what we would call it. If you want to, what the eggheads would call it. It's an attachment wound because something didn't go the way, you know, we would hope it to. And the problem is, as we get to be adults, we continue to operate out of that wound. And, and we don't, and we think that we're actually healing ourselves by by constantly overwhelming others and giving to others and making them the priority. But all we're really doing is reopening the wound on a regular basis. And I always tell people, look, they always ask, what's the most important thing I can do for the addict in my family? I'm like, get into your own recovery. You have to heal your wound first before you can help somebody else. My favorite analogy is when the airplane starts to get bumpy and the, the air that the gas, the oxygen mask comes down, you know, you got to put your mask on first and then pick your favorite child and put theirs on, you know, and, but you can't save others until you've taken care of you. Right. So I'm just going to come right out and say it. If you want your loved one to get sober and to stay sober, and I think that's what people, when parents call and they say, my, my son is on drugs or something happened, there's an overdose or an arrest. What they want is their, their, their loved one, their child to be happy a year from now and sober a year from now and five years from now, maybe they'll have grandkids, right? They think what they want is to like fix it right away. That's not really what they want. And so I'm just going to come right out and say it, that if you want that to happen, if you want your son or daughter or whoever it is to be clean and sober and happy and healthy a year, five years from now, you got to do the work. And I know people right now are thinking, not me, not my family. Yes, you. Yes, your family. Um, and even if I'm wrong and you're wrong, it's not going to hurt if they do the work too. If they really want their son or daughter or loved one to get sober and they do the work for nothing, I don't know, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. I'm not going to, I'm not going to refund on their money, but <laughs> it's, I'm just saying they have to do it. Okay. And so in the book, you, you start out and you're, and you're very clear. You, you have plan A and plan B. Mm -hmm. Plan A is we're not going to rehab yet. Uh, it's like good parenting, right? Uh, boundaries and structure and accountability and if they are able to like follow the rules, which is no drinking and no using in the house, no bad behavior, no cussing, no yelling, no screaming, no lying, you're home by curfew, great. Uh, maybe you're not an addict, right? And then you go on to say, you're very clear and I love this. If they can't do it, they are an addict and they need treatment, right? Like, and you're not going to say, well, there's an addict and then there's somebody who's experimenting and you make that distinction. And I like that. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the things that I always try to get across to people right off the bat is let's, let's talk about what we, when we, what's define addiction, you know, and like Sarah brought up, you know, there's the DSM and there's the ASAM and there's all these other things. And I got to tell you that stuff gets confusing for me. I understand its value and why, but here's where I come from. Once I start, I can't stop or control. Knowing that, I can't not start. Right. Make it simple. Once I start, I can't stop and I can't not start. So if I can get the family to sort of recognize that, hey, look, you know, he can't control it. It's not, he's not a bad person. 
he's not, you know, he's, he's just, he's got a disease. He needs help. Get, let's get him help. And, and if we can get people centered around that idea, then it sort of takes this pressure off because the next thing, and I know, I know Sarah's going to chime in on this. The next thing is the first thing out of their parents' mouth is this is my fault. I have failed. Absolutely. Um, and like one of the things that I've started implementing in our groups is like, we don't talk about the addict or the alcoholic. We talk only about how you respond to them because there is so much of this guilt. There is so much of this shame. It has nothing to do with the alcoholic at that point. It has to do with like, um, our childhood wounding. And I always say codependency is a trauma response. We are codependent because we have this generational trauma, childhood wounding. Um, and so that's what it has to do with. And how can we heal that so that you can be effective? You know, yeah. this concept of like, how did I fail my child at this point? It's like, how am I failing myself in my own personal growth and recovery? And then the next argument you're going to get, and I know you've heard this before, Sarah, is I don't have any trauma. Right. No, no, no. My family was, this is my, this is my favorite thing. And I've stopped arguing with people is, oh no, Kevin, you don't understand. There's no history of addiction or mental health issues in, the, in my entire family since day one, since, you know, before Christ. And I'm like, okay, cool. No problem. You know, <laughs> I'm not going to argue with you on that one, you know, and but what I what I am going to show them is that generationally what they think is normal behavior is actually extremely codependent and enabling and dangerous. And when I can get them to see that, then we can take them down the path of, oh, look, oh, look, oh, look at the generational trauma, look at the childhood attachment issues. I mean, I'm, I'm Sarah and I are like, it's like we're the same mind. You know, we must have gone to the same school. I know. <laughs> same two schools, I believe. Yeah, I <laughs> and another thing I love is you're very clear, and I'm sure you see this all the time. And we do, we do see it all the time. Mom or dad drinks, and they say, but I'm a functioning alcoholic. And you're very <sighs> clear in your book. There is no such thing as a functioning alcoholic. Just because you work and you make it to work and you get a paycheck, does not necessarily mean you're a functioning alcoholic. Yeah, I don't believe in that statement. I don't believe in a functional alcoholic. I mean, I, I hear that all the time. And so, you know, the next question is, oh, okay, you go to work every day. Great. How's work? Oh, well, you know, I hate work and work hates me. And right. how's your relationship with your partner? Well, you know, it's terrible. And the kids don't talk to me. And it's, uh, okay, so let's <laughs> let's take a look at what what's functional. You know, th that's not functional, you know. That's not, that doesn't work that way. Right. So it's also a terrible excuse uh, for my son is on drugs, but I'm a functioning alcoholic, whatever. Right. And so you go from plan A to plan B. Plan A didn't work. Okay. We're at plan B. And if you're on, I think you, you named the drugs, crystal meth, heroin, cocaine, you're right at plan B. We're not messing around with plan A, right? Uh, you're right at yeah. plan B. So when someone's at plan B and then you go right into it, Here's the continuum of care. And you're very, very blunt and it's very educational. Detox, residential, PHP, IOP, sober living. You, you say the same thing we say, which is like our wheelhouse is long-term recovery. We're not going to do 28 days and then go home to like the dysfunction. You, I think you say six months is what I recommend. 
Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I always say that the, you know, the real work is done from day 31 to day 365, you know, because we have to break, it's not just get, uh, relieving the alcohol and the drugs out of the body, it's, it's changing the behavior and changing the system. And, and that just doesn't get done in 28 days, you know, and we have to engage back into, I mean, I mean plus it, to take somebody into a fully contained uh, inpatient environment and then magically overnight throw them back out into the wild and be like, okay, good luck you know, and wonder why it fails. It's like, well, they, they, you know, go to meetings and, and see your therapist once a week. It's like, no, 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 no. You have to step them down and gradually allow them back into the wild and, and let them, and also they have to find their community, you know? Right. And, and then, we're, not, we're not trying to shame families. Uh, what you're suggesting yeah. is that they reintegrate as the family gets healthy and they reintegrate into life. And it's like, baby steps. And so that, like I mentioned before, in a year, you have a happy, healthy family. And you say this a lot in your book, uh, happy individuals make happy families. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> I, I stole this from a, there was an old ad and I grew up in California and there was this old ad that said, you know, um, great cheese comes from great cows, great cows come from California. And so what I always say is, um, you know, happy individual. I mean, uh, happy individuals uh, make happy family. What do I say? Um, happy families are made up of happy individuals. Happy individuals work on their stuff. Right. Everybody has stuff. And, no matter what. Everybody has stuff. Yeah. Right. Everybody, everybody has stuff. So everybody has stuff. Something to shame families. This is like, uh, and I don't think you were in the book. It didn't sound like that at no. all. It's very supportive. Um, it was just kind of like, forget everything you know. Here's what we're going to do. And um, so what does it look like when somebody goes to residential and the family's doing their stuff? And because um, we're trying to do it now, Sarah's trying to do it now. And it's a lot of difficult conversations. And there seems to be a lot of like families relapse on their codependency. Oh, yeah. And 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 it's for, for the clinicians and the people working in your guys's world and my world. It's about being super patient and super supportive and super empathetic and loving with the families because they mean well. They honestly mean well. They really think, you know, I mean, I was working with a family recently where um, the, uh, the the client was in treatment and we had our family meeting and we talked about what the do's and the don'ts. And and the one, one member of the family was like, oh, so you mean I shouldn't have sent her a care package with a bunch of... Uh, vapes and that sort of thing. And I'm like, yeah, no, <laughs> that's probably going to get intercepted, but that's okay. <laughs> you know, but I you know, the thing is it's, it's the family just needs an opportunity to have someone guide them through the process and educate them. And I mean, that's always the first step, right? Is educate the heck out of them, you know, let them watch, uh, you know, let them watch Kevin McCauley's pleasure unwoven, you know, let them read codependent no more. You know, let them go to the the meetings that Sarah hosts, you know, and 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 sort of just sit and listen and be like, oh, I'm not the only one. Oh, oh, oh okay. Oh, I did that too. Oh my gosh. Well, oh, that's wrong. Oh my gosh. Okay, help. You know. Yeah. When I think so much of it is about presenting it in a way that's normalizing those feelings and behaviors. Um, and I know I've had like family members attending the same group every week religiously for four months 
and four months down, they'll be like, oh my God, I felt this way. And that's so weird. Is that weird? And I'm like, that's normal. Even four months into your own process, your own work, it's normal to feel this way. Um, and a lot of families come in and they start doing the therapy work in their own process and they don't think any of this is normal. Yeah. They're like, oh man, nobody's ever done this before, right? And they'll share it in the group and they'll be like, yeah, and I was so anxious and then I did this and I felt a little better, but that's weird, right? And the group's like, no, I've done that a hundred million times. And actually you feel better when you stop doing that stuff. That's the key. I mean, that's the that's the key ingredient is really, you know, helping the families understand that you're not you're not alone. There's other people fighting this exact same battle. And and that's where I mean, it's sort of one of the things that I kind of do with the families I work with is they're like, they'll be like, wow, you know, I don't think he's taking his 12 steps seriously. And I don't think he has a sponsor. And I don't think he's going to enough meetings. What do you say to that, Kevin? I say, I said, oh, I, I have a question for you. Where, what step are you on and who's your sponsor and what meetings have you been to? And they're just like, huh? And I'm like, well, you know, you can't expect them to do something you're not willing to do. You have to lead by example. And so you have to get into your stuff. And, and I'll tell you something, as a recovering alcoholic and a recovering addict, there's nothing scarier than having a family member say, so, I went to my meeting today and guess what? You're like, uh-oh, <laughs> hold it. <laughs> it's cool when I do it. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, one thing I've noticed that I went to Al-Anon for, I don't know, a couple of years. And it's it surprised me that when, like the point of being in Al-Anon and going through the steps is to reach a point where whatever whatever your loved one does doesn't affect you anymore. And they go there looking for support, like, how do I fix them? How do I make them stop? And what they learn is it doesn't matter if they stop. I mean, it does, but I'm going to be happy and content and healthy and have good boundaries no matter what. But the, the trick is that when they get to that point where they have healthy boundaries and they're happy no matter what, it doesn't work for the addict or alcoholic anymore. And they are more likely to get well, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the thing that I, I always tell the families is that, you know, imagine the systemic change that would occur that even while your person is still using, and I have to say, and I'm not, I'm not trying to correct you, but I don't think it's, I don't think the concept of the, the going to the 12 steps for people and codependency is to, to like not care or, I mean, I don't, and that's not what you said, but my, th what I always tell them is you want to get neutral, neutral. you know, you don't want them they're the addict's behavior to determine your happiness. It's, it's always going to affect you, always, no matter what. But we can minimize that and neutralize that to a space of like, well, that's your choice. And with that choice comes a little bit of distance from me, you know? And, and I think that's really the goal is getting, again, getting the family members to start taking care of themselves. You know, my mom died of, of long-term prescription drug use in 2014. And it was horrible and it was painful. And I, and I, you know, told her how I felt and I came to her and I was just like, you know, I'm, I'm terrified of what's going on here. And her choice was, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm fine, you know, and I don't need your help. And I was like, you know, and I went back to my Al-Anon sponsor and I said, hey, what's up? And she's like, well, she's told you how she feels. You need to respect her wishes. But at the same time, 
you, that doesn't mean you have to go engage with it all the, all day long and get sucked into it. You can put a boundary and say, you know, I'm going to come by once in a while. I love you. I'll always love you. I'm just not going to participate in this process. Right. And, and, but I think like what, what I got from the book is that if you follow the plan, the way that you lay it out and you work on your stuff and you do therapy and you do some sort of support group, I don't care if it's Al-Anon, whatever it is, um, and you have good boundaries, your loved one is more likely to get well. And that's really what you want. Yeah. And, and so, I don't know, that was my takeaway from the book. Yeah. No, I, thanks, Bryce. I, yeah, first uh, of all, thanks for reading the book. You have no idea how much that means to me. I like it. <laughs> I, read your, you. I read your first book, Kevin. Many all right. Well, you got to read the second one, Sarah. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. I'll download it on Kindle after this. Awesome. Um, it's, it's a good uh, book, you know. Thank you. I, I don't think that. people realize, like families don't realize that if they do the work, they'll get what they want, which is their loved one to be healthy. It's, it's like, I don't know. I get it. It's like, why should I have to do work? I, I'm not the one on drugs. I'm not living in a sober house. I'm not in rehab. But if, or if I, yeah. right, or whatever it is. But if, I, yeah. if like I as a parent don't have that attitude or listen to people like you and Sarah and I get well, my loved one is more likely to get well. Absolutely. No questions asked. And, yeah. you know, uh, that's, that's, and, and it, so, so, you know, my, my degrees, I'm on my license as a marriage and family therapist. And we look at systemic change, the entire family system. So what you're talking about is the most effective way to change the family system is to change the individuals. And so if we can get, you know, one person in the family to engage in their recovery for their codependence, it, it forces everyone to change. It forces it. You have to react to it because you're part of the family system. And, and that's the rippling effect that we're looking for. And I look at it kind of like, you know, this infinite, infinite loop, right? We engage and then we disengage and that trauma trigger is right in the middle. And our goal as uh, therapists and recovering people and healed individuals is to share the message that when that trauma trigger comes up, we don't go back around. Um, and that's like, we have the education, we have the ability to impart that on other people kind of like working the 12 step of Al-Anon is we're supporting people in that journey of how do I break free from this infinite feedback loop that has brought nothing but pain to this side, right? To my addict side and to my side, my codependent side or whatever it is. Um, and I think like when we talk about Kevin's plan, like plan B, that's the boundaries, that's the structure, that's the stability that allows us to give parents that breathing room. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. We're running That's, out of time. I want you to pitch Chronic Hope Institute. Sure. So the Chronic Hope Institute, I, I founded it last year, and it is designed to help families that are struggling with addiction and codependency um, and help clinicians learn more about addiction and codependency. And here's the, here's the flow. We have a podcast, we have a YouTube channel, we have a website, uh, and those are all free. Everything's 100% free. You can find all this stuff we're talking about and all that material 100% free. Then you step, the next step up is the two books, Chronic Hope, 
parenting or parenting the addicted child and then families and addiction. And those are like $10. And then the next step up from that is I have a new video series. It's $37. It's one hour. It describes the book and kind of walks through the plan and the process. And then after that, it's actually working with some of our staff and doing, you know, family coaching and family case management and engagement. But our whole mission is we want you to have all the information for free, 100% for free. It's right there. Please take it. We want you to have it. Cool. And um, it's www.chronicope.us. It is. It's flashing <laughs> across the bottom. Kevin, thank you. Uh, it's an honor to get to talk to you. Like I said, everyone really respects you in our industry. And I'm, I'm really honored that you came on. Hey, man, I'm honored to be brought here. You guys are two of my absolute faves. I love Sarah to death. We, uh, we actually interned together, and we had a lot of fun. So it's just great to see everybody, it's, see both of you, and you guys are doing great work. So Thank you. Th Thank thanks you for too, having me. Kevin. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> Not if I see you first. Oh, God. <laughs> All right, see you guys later. All right. Bye. Thank <laughs> you.